Welcome to Credo, with me, Father Andrew Eburn, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. This week's episode and next week's are really one extended episode which looks at that part of the Creed describing Jesus' relationship to God, his Father. So if I read you uh, that entire passage of the Creed, we have... I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, uh, which we talked about last week, then the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Now, an awful lot there and a long passage. So this week, we're going to look just at the first half I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. And then we'll move on to the rest in the next episode. So, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. And I guess the really important words are the three short ones in the middle, Son of God. Those words are the ones that really matter. But before and after those three short essential words come two phrases that can be, for some people, fantastically confusing. Only begotten and born of the Father before all ages. And I think the reasons they are or have the potential to be confusing are twofold. The first reason is because they try to describe a great and fundamental mystery which has to do with Jesus existing in eternity, existing outside time itself, a mystery which language strains and struggles to describe. How do you describe that at all? And the second reason, a more down-to-earth reason, is because, as we have seen, our Nicene Creed is formulated in three different languages. The original Greek, the Latin, which is, if you like, the mother tongue of the church, and then the English which we use in our churches today. And sometimes those three languages combine in ways which are not as clear as they might be. So I'll try to be as clear and succinct as possible, but let's start with the first of those phrases, only begotten. Jesus describes himself as only begotten. He does so in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when he's speaking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, and he describes himself and his mission with, we might add, some of the most beautiful words in the Gospel. Jesus says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're Catholic, it's possible those words are a little bit unfamiliar, because I am actually quoting from the King James Version. Yes, a Protestant Bible. Because, as so often, the modern Jerusalem Bible, and I'm afraid this is quite often the case, the modern Jerusalem Bible, which is the one we use today in Mass in the Catholic Church, doesn't get it quite right. Our modern translation says, this is the Gospel of John, God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son. Which is simple and straightforward, but which, of course, misses out the word begotten, so only son rather than only begotten son. There is a word missed out. But you know what? 
Actually, St. John in his Gospel is really explicit at this point. He uses what is actually quite a technical term, the word monogene, monogene, which means only generated or only begotten, to record how Jesus describes himself. And it is this word, monogene, or only generated, only begotten, which is used in the original Greek version of the creed to theonton monogene, of God the only begotten. So going back to my point that different languages are involved here. But why this peculiar word monogene, or only begotten? Well, let's think for a moment about what the Bible says about Jesus's origins. I don't mean his human origins. Uh, We know the story of the nativity and Jesus' birth. I mean his divine origins. Once again, the best account is in the Gospel of John. And again, really well-known and beautiful words. The first words, in fact, of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the Word, as we know, is Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, as we call him, and these are his divine origins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So let's now ask ourselves a simple question about what John describes here. And the question is, when did this happen? When did this happen? And the simple answer is, in the beginning, by which we mean before creation before creation took place. Why is this important? Well, Jesus is not created. Jesus is divine and therefore is not, indeed cannot be, created. Uh, Or to put it another way, if God had created the Son, the Son would not and could not be divine, could not be God, because God is uncreated and eternal, Uh, while created things, for their part, have an origin in time. And that is why the word used to describe the relationship between God and Jesus, between the Father and the Son, is begotten, or literally generated. So created happens inside time, and begotten happens outside time. And at this point you might understand exactly what I mean about the struggle of language to describe the mystery of divine life. If we move on to that second phrase, born of the Father before all ages, you might be able to see the same parallel to John's description of Jesus the eternal word who has existed from the beginning, before creation. So we have the word before all ages, referring to the same phenomenon of Jesus the eternal word existing even before Time began before all ages. If you're especially sharp, however, you might have noticed that word born, born of the Father before all ages, and you might say, hang on, what's that word doing there? It doesn't born sound a lot like created. Isn't that what we're trying to avoid saying? Well, uh, if you did notice that, well done. And yes, the word born does on the face of it muddy the waters, rather. But that brings us back to this uh, question yet again of using three different languages in the creed. So the original Greek uses the phrase uh, phrase to patros genithenta. Patros uh, is father and genithenta is generated. So uh, patros genithenta generated or begotten from the father. However, 
this phrase was then translated into Latin as ex patre natum. Patre natum, patre, which of course is father, and then the Latin word natum, which gives us nativity and, uh, for example, prenatal care, etc., which we translate as born. Born of the Father before all ages. Still, however, describing Jesus as divine and therefore existing even before creation took place. And then at last, we get on to those central, centrally important words, Son of God. And I really have to apologise because having spent so long on the intricacies of the other parts of this clause, we have no time to do anything like justice to the central part. But just a couple of very quick points. Firstly, how important this is to Christ himself. Jesus himself asked for belief in his name as the only Son of God. That's John 3.18. He gets himself killed for this claim, we might even say. Uh, when the high priest at Jesus' trial asks him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am, and that's it. That seals his fate. Why do we still need witnesses? asked the high priest. You have heard his blasphemy. It was, I think, C.S. Lewis uh, who first made the point that you can't really uh, get around this self-definition, if you like, of Jesus's. That is, it's not really a legitimate option to regard Jesus as just a beautiful exemplar and a great teacher, but not actually divine, not the Son of God, because Jesus makes it very clear that's what he regards himself to be. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this in his little book, Mere Christianity. He says, uh, this is Lewis now, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Uh, so uh, Jesus insists, if you like, on the importance of his own divinity. And by the by, we shouldn't underestimate the, the taboo that Jesus was breaking in claiming to be God's son. This was the ultimate blasphemy. And it really undermined what was an absolutely central pillar of Jewish life and society, a society which was, of course, essentially a theocracy, a country, a society ruled by religious leaders. So uh, just one other little side point I would make is this. Sometimes people say that Jesus' teaching or some aspects of Jesus' teaching are really just a reflection of the conventions of his day. Uh, so one example of that might be his choice of male apostles, 12 apostles. Now some people say, oh, well, choosing men, that's just a social convention of the day. That's why he did it. But Jesus shows that he has absolutely no problems breaking social conventions. He breaks the biggest convention of all of his times in claiming to be the son of God and he dies for it. He doesn't retract it. And then one final point, and I apologize again because I really haven't left enough time to deal with this adequately, but let's just remind ourselves what all this says about God's love for us. What does Jesus' sonship say 
about God's love for us. Well, the Gospel of John once again tells us, and so I'm going to end in the same place I began, with Jesus' description of himself to the Pharisee Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son to the end that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That's what it comes down to. The sonship of Jesus is ultimately a measure and a mirror of God's love for us, a God who cannot stay remote and removed from us, who cannot stay remote and distant in eternity, safely outside creation, as we mentioned earlier, but a God who so loves us that he has to get involved. He has to participate in our lives. He has to walk among us. He has to suffer with us and ultimately to die for us. So on that note, I'm going to end with the words of Samuel Crossman, a Suffolk boy like myself, who in 1664 wrote the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. This is the last verse. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Thank you so much for joining me. Do join me again next week for the next episode and the next article of the Creed. May God bless you all, and may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make together into the beauties of the Catholic faith.